I always put my books on sale. everyone and welcome to season four episode 14 of the real spies real lives podcast this is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies i'm your host espionage author p.a duncan apologies for the hiatus last week As usual, I left my taxes too close to the last minute, and every time I take my packet into my accountant, I hear, we may have to file an extension, but they never have to, because compared to their other clients, my taxes are relatively simple. So, why use an accountant? If I screw up, I have to deal with the IRS myself, and remember, I worked for a regulatory government agency. I know how frustrating that can be. But if the accountant screws up, they get to deal with the IRS. You know from the commercial breaks I take in every podcast between this part of the podcast where I blather to you and the reading selection that I'm always touting one or more of my books that's on sale for the particular month. Blatant self-promotion, you say? Well, yes. If I don't promote my books, who will? I'm not one of those authors whose publisher deems them worthy of marketing assistance. I'm just not. I have to do it on my own. And, frankly, I'm not all that good at it. So I'm constantly looking for ways to increase my book sales. I mean, that's why we write, right? To sell books? Well, maybe. According to all the marketing stuff I read, one of the most effective methods is through promotional discounts on ebooks. The theory is, by offering promotional discounts, I can attract more readers, build a loyal fan base, who will help me sell more books in the future. Most of my marketing and promotions are what's called organic. That is, I use free sources to get the word out. Social media, my blog, my newsletter, this podcast, etc., However, I've had far more success granted with promotions I've paid for. Amazon ads, Facebook ads, specific genre promotions offered by marketing websites, and so on. But the paid options are expensive, and I use them judiciously. Promotional discounts on ebooks can come in many forms, from percentage based discounts, you know, 30% off, 45% off, to free book giveaways. 
If you've followed me for even a brief time, you know this is mostly the way I go about it organically. I reduce the price of one of my titles as low as Amazon will allow for a month and offer some free days for the book within that month. However, it's a double-edged sword. Why? Free equals zero royalties. In a promotion I bought into a few months back, I sold, quote-unquote, close to a thousand copies of my debut novel from 2017, A War of Deception, sufficient to push it to number two on an Amazon bestseller list for free books. Free means when those nearly 1,000 books got downloaded, I got no royalties. Until days or maybe weeks later when the people who downloaded the free book got around to reading it. And I got royalties considerably less than for actual sales for what's called Kindle Edition Normalized Pages Read. Yes, if you have a Kindle or the Kindle app, the Zon tracks how many pages you've read for the purpose of giving authors royalties. Even if it's in Kindle Unlimited and it's free anyway, once you start to read it, the author gets royalties. However, if someone downloads a free book and for whatever reason never gets around to reading it, zero royalties. Now, I've said before, I didn't become published for the sole purpose of making money. It's nice. It enables me to deduct some things on my taxes. I have stories I want to tell, and they're going to be published whether anyone reads them or not, whether I get royalties or not. It's nice when that happens, but my books are my legacy. Now, I am happy elated and proud when someone does read them, and I'm grateful, too, for the read and the review and the little bit of royalties. But I am one of literally millions of authors out there now. It's no longer an exclusive club. And because there's so much competition, I'm glad I don't have to worry about paying the mortgage or the utilities from my royalties because I would be homeless. Back to the two-edged sword. I know that the lower I price my books, the higher the chance someone will buy them. I know when I set up a book for free days, I get a bump up in orders. I suppose it's the Scots DNA in me that recoils from that somewhat. Most of my books are between 80,000 and 100,000 words. Putting them on sale for 99 cents makes me cringe. But I do it because I want to, as I said above, attract more readers and build a loyal fan base. So... It might also be a three-edged sword because if you price your books too low, some readers will interpret that to mean 
that it's not worthy of their reading time. It's not good. It's junk. Yet, there are other readers, and I've heard from them, who consider 99 cents, less than a dollar, too much for an ebook and can't understand why I don't just issue my books free all the time. Well, here's a good reason. I have writer friends who are full-time writers. So am I, but in a different context. Their royalties do have to be enough to pay the mortgage, feed the families, and keep the utilities running. I was lucky to have had a job that provided me a decent annuity in retirement so I can focus on writing and not worry about the water and the electricity being shut off. And frankly, getting a book from concept to something you can hold in your hands and read is hard work. A lot of people don't believe that, but it's hard work. It's a job a profession, or for some of us, it's a calling. Okay, well, if I feel this way about it, why do I keep putting books on sale? Because, probably deep down, I do want you to read them and enjoy them and recommend them to your friends. And don't forget the review. Reviews are your small part in helping me grow my fan base and sell more books. So, hey, I just gave you a reduced price or free book. Give an author some love. This past Saturday, April Fool's Day, by the way, the pre-order for my new Reader Magnet slash prequel went live. No fooling. Prologue to Treachery is an intro to the upcoming book three in the Meeting the Enemy series. Book three is titled Treachery. And in case you haven't noticed, the first reader magnet for the first novel, which was Terror, was titled Prologue to Terror. And the second book, which was titled Revenge, the reader magnet was titled Prologue to Revenge. So, Treachery, Prologue to Treachery. And because Prologue to Treachery takes place in the 1990s, that means I can write another story about a character I killed off in 1999. Well, I didn't kill him off. He died of natural causes. That, of course, is Edwin Terrell Jr. I resurrected him in the novel Terror, which is Meeting the Enemy Book One, but as a concussion-generated ghost in Mai's head that she has meaningful conversations with. Why is it I can't seem to let him go? Well, why do screenwriters keep bringing back fan-favorite characters in TV shows and movies? Well, because, like viewers, readers, want more of a character they've become attached to. And to be truthful, writers miss those characters too. I've always loved the dialogue between Mai and Terrell with all that blatant sexual tension on Terrell's part and the suppressed sexual tension on Mai's part. 
But for Prologue to Treachery, I decided to make this a totally Tyrell-centric story. Most of his interactions are with the head of the directorate, Nelson, and the other characters in the story. Mai and Alexei don't show up except as mentions in dialogue. Plus, we see a sentimental side of Tyrell he's hidden all his life. You can find out more about Prologue to Treachery in the commercial break. I haven't watched any good spy movies or shows lately. Baseball season has started and my occasional free afternoons and most evenings are occupied with watching Yankees games. But I have a couple of shows and movies on my to-be-watched list. The Night Agent is one. It's been like the top most watched series on, I believe, Netflix or Prime. I don't remember which. I have them both, so it's not a problem. And I also want to watch the the movie about Kim Philby, whose title escapes me. It's not a movie. I think it's a series on MGM+, Plus, which I don't have, so I'm going to have to try and figure out how to watch it. When I do get around to those, I will definitely talk about them here. And another thing I want to talk about here eventually is the book I just bought, A Private Spy, The Letters of Jean Le Carré. Frankly, it is one of the thickest books I've ever owned. It's a good three inches thick. But I'm itching to get into it, and we'll definitely discuss it here once I do. And now, it's commercial time. So, pursuant to what I talked about in the first part of the podcast, two of my first novellas are on sale this month for 99 cents each. The Yellow Scarf and My Noble Enemy. I will also offer both for free toward the end of the month, toward the end of April 2023, probably around my birthday. So see, on my birthday, I'm giving my readers presents. The Yellow Scarf is about the siege of Sarajevo in the early 1990s and how my Fisher, my UN spy, works to achieve a little justice for a young mother killed by a Serbian army sniper. She opts for the civilized way, gathering evidence to add to a long list of war crimes. Her partner... Alexei Bukharin, opts for a less civilized approach, but you'll have to read it to find out what he does. I'll put the link to the sale in the description of this week's episode. The novella My Noble Enemy is the poster child for the theme of my work, Real Spies with Real Lives. A dying ex-CIA case officer looks up Mai Fisher at her new job at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, to say goodbye before he goes off and deals with his stage four lung cancer in his own way. Instead, he finds himself surrounded by people who care for him while he finishes his journey. And of course, that person is Edwin Terrell Jr. I'll also put the link for this sale in the description of this week's episode. 
And finally, as mentioned above, Prologue to Treachery is now available for pre-order and will launch on April 27th. That link to pre-order will also be in this episode's description. And commercial over. I think I'll read from Prologue to Treachery this week and from the two on-sale novellas later in the month. So let me set up Prologue to Treachery again in a little more depth. This story starts in 1992. Terrell is retired from the CIA. He has a decent pension and a small income from odd jobs. Nelson from the directorate sends his way. But he'd always envisioned his retirement as an opportunity to travel for pleasure. For that, he needs a decent paying job, preferably one involving a lot of that payment in cash. He finally responds to an ad he's seen for a company called Fullerton Specialties. And you'll recognize that name from Meeting the Enemy books one and two. And so... Here we go from Prologue to Treachery. December 14th, 1992, near Bozeman, Montana. Edwin Terrell Jr. parked his rental car with care. If he dinged any car in this lot, he'd be out five figures. He'd never seen so many Mercedes, Beamers, Lexuses, and Porsche Cayennes in one place in his life. This job interview might be a positive thing after all. Salaries here must be better than good. The building itself was nondescript, though it and its acreage occupied half of this light industrial park. It was a long, dark gray slab of concrete with blacked-out windows. Six-foot-tall brass letters rose above the fifth and highest floor, and read Fullerton Specialties in a stark, minimalist font. The security at the gated entrance had impressed Terrell, who knew a thing or three about protection. At least six guys, who looked like they moonlighted in pro wrestling and clad in dark green BDUs. Sidearms, Sig Sowers, for the two men in a guard box the size of a small house. Four others, two on either side of the entrance, with sidearms, body armor, and brand-spanking-new MP5s. Overkill much, Terrell thought and wondered what need beyond paranoia required heightened security in the middle-of-nowhere bumfuck Montana. Well, on the outskirts of Bozeman. After Terrell had eased to a stop before the reinforced security gate, one guard had emerged from the guardhouse with a muzzled German shepherd dog. Now, what good is a muzzled guard dog, Terrell wondered. When the guard led the dog around the rental, Terrell realized the German shepherd was a bomb-sniffing dog. More paranoia. The second guard, who stood by the lowered driver's side window of the car with his hand resting on the butt of his sig, motioned for Terrell to open the trunk. A tense few seconds passed until Terrell found the trunk release in the unfamiliar vehicle. The dog leapt into the trunk on command, jumped out again, and finished his circuit of the car. 
Terrell knew he'd signaled on nothing when the guard standing by his door let his hand drop from his weapon. The handler put the dog back into the guardhouse and took up a position outside it. Identification in your letter confirming your interview, the other guard said, firm but calm, direct and steady. The guard reviewed both items, stepped inside the guardhouse to make a call, and returned with the documents and a temporary parking pass for Terrell to display on his dash. Park anywhere you find a space in the four rows closest to the entrance. The guard barked as though giving orders. Terrell almost wanted to salute, but this kind of guard duty went to the lowest skill set. This guy had been a grunt. Terrell had been a lieutenant. Now parked in the second row, Terrell let the car idle to soak up as much warmth as possible from the heater. It was fucking Montana cold outside, with mounds of snow piled on what would have been the grassy areas at the sides of the parking lot. He'd done his research. He knew who Fullerton's CEO was, a former two-term congressman from Oklahoma, before that a prominent Republican donor, after that, White House Chief of Staff under Reagan, Secretary of Defense during the single-term Arba Senior Administration, and therefore in charge of the Gulf War, Terrell had had a hand in planning. He'd judiciously not included that in his resume because it was on Saddam Hussein's behalf. The man was an idiot and a third-rate dictator, but he paid well. Fullerton's CEO had made his money in oil and natural gas, oil drilling equipment and its maintenance, shrewd real estate investment and development, and venture capital investments. He had a knack for identifying money-making startups and had been savvy enough to back out of the tech bubble before it burst and savvy enough to know when to get back into tech. And, by all accounts, a top-notch son of a bitch. That didn't bother Terrell. More than a few people would attribute that epithet to him. He'd heard the rumors, though, that Fullerton's CEO was cruel, even vicious, misogynistic, and racist, all carefully hidden for his future plans and politics. In photographs in the media, he looked like a doting husband and father, loving grandfather. But he was, it seemed, an Oscar-worthy actor. Terrell couldn't abide hypocrites, people who acted one way when all eyes were on them, but who were abominable human beings in reality. Still, Terrell needed a job, one that paid well. His CIA pension plus the medical disability meant he was comfortable, but only that. His consulting fee from Hussein, he'd already frittered away in Las Vegas where he'd reached the conclusion he was no gambler, he thought that retirement, forced though it was, would have involved travel to exotic places, not for work, but for pleasure. Or maybe to work on that Ph.D. in English lit or philosophy he'd often considered over the years. In truth, he hadn't been much of a saver despite his decent CIA salary. In his work with the CIA, he'd developed a taste for the good things in life, a nice car, a decent condo, good food and wine, expensive clothes, and women. In his old job, he'd have been ripe for recruitment by some foreign government, and a few had tried and failed because, hell, he was a patriot. 
He liked the good things, but he also loved his country. Having left a lot of his blood in the jungles of Vietnam for the army, and an arm in a North Korean prison for the CIA. About the tenth or twelfth time he'd seen a recruitment ad from Fullerton Specialties, in the military and intelligence magazines that were his favorite reads, he'd called their 800 number. A quick phone interview, a lengthy application mailed to him and returned, filled out, and he got the letter giving him a date and time for an in-person interview. And a round-trip ticket from D.C. to Bozeman via Helena, Montana. And here he was, dressed in his best suit, hair fresh-cut, perpetual five-o'clock shadow shave, and wearing his prosthesis. It had been a while since he'd worn either the suit or the prosthesis. He no longer needed the corporate uniform after retirement, and the prosthesis was your basic model paid for by government-provided health insurance, meaning it was no more than a strap-on and far less useful than the sex toy version. He stepped from the car into a frigid wind. The temperature was in the low 30s, not quite freezing, but the wind chill made it feel like 10 degrees. Good thing wind didn't ruffle a near buzz cut. He took his cashmere coat and merino wool scarf from the back seat and donned both, wishing he'd brought a hat. A check of his watch, and he locked the car as he strode toward the double-door entrance. The main reception area was a quarter the size of a football field, laden with high-end but tasteful furnishings and art. My Fisher had once explained why the nouveau riche, and Fullerton's CEO was definitely that, overdid everything from furniture to housing to clothing to spouses. They're never quite sure whether they're going to get to keep all that wealth, she'd said, so they have to show it off to everyone while they have the chance. So cross. She was right. He'd been in her condo, then her new house in Virginia. She was comfortable with old masters on her walls and antiques in every room, but nothing was too much. Art and furniture were perfect accessories to her life and far from crass. So, Fullerton's CEO must have hired someone to decorate this place. It was simply elegant, and it said, I'm rich, but I'm also classy. A woman, no more than 25, stood in the middle of the reception area and faced the door. When he entered, she smiled and came toward him. She wore a dark blue, long-sleeved dress that buttoned up the front, off-black hose and stilettos matching her dress. Her blonde hair was wound in a tight bun slightly off the top of her head. A gold watch, some sort of sparkling tennis bracelet, and a gold necklace inside the pentagon of her neckline were also elegant and soft-spoken. Again, Terrell thought of her like the decor, rich but not flashy. Mr. Terrell, she said with a soft hint of New England. She extended her left hand so she knew that his right arm was merely a prop. Yes, Edwin Terrell, Jr., he replied. Her well-manicured nails, her lipstick, and her eyeshadow were all a medium rose, and she was beyond attractive. She was drop-dead beautiful. He forced himself not to focus on that. Welcome to Fullerton Specialties. I'm Wanda Harrison. I'm an assistant to the head of Security Solutions, a division of Fullerton, she said. 
I'll take you there first, and then my boss will take you for your chat with the CEO. This way, please. Or would you like to check your coat and scarf? Yeah, please, sir. Better than dragging them all over the place, he replied. Three-plus years without a right arm, but he still hadn't mastered getting himself in and out of clothes without it. Wanda stepped behind him and helped him off with his coat. He could manage the scarf which he handed to her. With both folded neatly over one arm, she strode toward the receptionist's desk, her heels clicking on the marble floor, and her ass moving in an invitation. Terrell looked away before his body could react. When she returned, she motioned him to the right of the reception area and led the way to an elevator marked private. He made sure he was a step or so behind her. That ass deserved to be watched. All right, I think that's enough for today. That selection was heavy with expository information and very little dialogue, but sometimes you got to set things up. And this really isn't an action-oriented story. It's kind of a tradecraft-oriented story and a character study. It's slated to be nice and warm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia for the next few days, and I have several excursions planned to get me out of the house and soak up some vitamin D. But of course, you know what I'll really be doing, right? I'll be keeping an eye out for spies. <laughs>